Hello and welcome to the weekly Unheard podcast. I'm Aisha Hazarika and I'm joined by my uh, sidekick and boss, uh, Tim <laughs> Montgomery, and Henry Awesome, who is the editor of the flyover um, section of Unheard. Uh, welcome all. How are you braving Snowmageddon? Well, it's cold. That's my analytical take on what's happening. But um, yesterday I was with Nigel Cameron walking along the pavement uh, during a very snowy uh, part of this period and we were basically tiptoeing and we realised <laughs> we were walking very gingerly and I suddenly very conscious that I've become an old man. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I because also because I'm sort of brown, I feel like as soon as this weather comes, I just morph into a pensioner. I'm not in my DNA, I'm not equipped to deal with this kind of weather, even though I was brought up in, in Glasgow. And Henry, have you are you well suited to it? You've obviously got American in you. You probably have much worse winters than Oh, we this. have much yes. Uh, but I had thought that this was going to be fine and walking around has been, you know, cold and a little uncomfortable. But I went to watch Spurs on Wednesday night at Wembley and I had the most cold frozen feet that I've ever had in my life in our home from Wembley to the hotel my feet were still frozen and I had to stick them into a tub of hot water in order to get better <laughs> so I would have to say your cold experience has been new even by my standards. wow well look there are always casualties in war like this is a, obviously a big thing can but I get can a I pension if I chop my toes off can I just say thank you to Henry though for not wearing his Spurs scarf to our podcast at least because it has been around your neck most of the week you've been with us but you are you are a, and you were not a, a sort of a part-time accidental Spurs supporter. You are a massive Spurs fan and in Washington DC you're up early on Sunday morning for matches, hanging out in the pub watching the games. It's a it's a big deal for you, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I put on my kit every uh, every game. I uh, Just the top. You don't wear socks and shorts. Well, actually in honor of Victoria Bateman, I've decided not to wear shorts <laughs> the next time. Um, no, I've got I've in in Sydney, Australia. I've stayed up till midnight for kickoff, uh, our opening match in 2016-17 against Palace. I was at the Spur Sydney Spurs bar. I've been up at four in the morning when we played some team up north that wears red and used to win titles. Um, and uh, uh, in California time, so uh, yeah, when Spurs are on, I am there. And how did you end up being a Spurs supporter? Uh, so an assistant of mine at my last at a job I had in the United States was a full, real, honest to God Englishman who's from North London and was an honest to God, born and bred Spurs fan. And so when I started following the Premiership, when my son was in uh, soccer, or as you properly call it, football, my son says in America we have to call football handball because they really use more of their hands <laughs> than their feet. Um, <laughs> And I was just so taken with the game, I was immediately captivated, and uh, that was the season Gareth Bale broke out into international stardom, so my latent loyalty become, became a fascination. And now, as uh, p poor people who are around me know, I uh, consume way too much Spurs news. So you've become like an obsessive... Well, I don't want to say obsessive football fan around Europe because I might qualify as an ordinary football fan here, but uh, in America I would be considered an obsessive football fan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're pretty obsessive, yeah, even by European standards. You've, okay. you've done very well. Okay, oh, that's, oh, bad, thank you. that's enough football chat, I think. That's <laughs> wait. So, so um, on to something which is extremely, even as important as football, the B word, Brexit. So, um, Tim, where do you think we are? Where do you think we've got to? We've had quite a big week on Brexit. We've had 
Jeremy Corbyn on Monday making mm. a big um, move. He did a speech in Coventry where he said that the Labour Party would support remaining in a customs union. And we've just had Theresa May's speech now, um, which she says we're not going to be in a customs union, but she's kind of signalled that she'd probably like us to remain closer um, than maybe some of her Brexiteer colleagues would like, and maybe you would like. Mm. So where do you think we are? Where do you think both parties are? Well, I think one of the interesting components of what Jeremy Corbyn said was, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has been a sort of lifelong Eurosceptic, you know, in the voting um, lobbies in Parliament over a number of years. He's been with Ian Duncan Smith and John Redwood and Bill Cash. He's been voting in the most Eurosceptic way. And yet on Monday in his speech, he signalled a pragmatism. Now, this isn't the first or last time probably we would have seen the pragmatism of Jeremy Corbyn. But aside from the issue of Europe, I think that's certainly what's frightening Tory MPs to a large extent. This is a Labour leader who is making decisions that again and again are putting the Tories on a back foot politically. You know, he's, he is very serious about converting the 40% of the vote he won last time into a winning share at the, at the general election. So I, I think Tory MPs have stopped underestimating Jeremy Corbyn some time ago, but this was another week in which they recognised that the, the Labour leadership was a very serious um, opponent. On the issue of Europe, um, I think... Labour are clearly hoping that they will inflict a parliamentary defeat on the Conservatives. And I think that is really possible. You know, you have Anna Soubry and Dominic Grieve. And you Ahant. like Anna Soubry, don't you? You're a big, you're a big fan of hers, especially on Twitter, I, I notice. She's a, she's, she's, she's a, a pin-up on um, I, my... She is for me. I've got on a massive, my dartboard. I've got a huge girl... I've got a massive girl crush on her. I love Anna Soubry. Um, she did tweet yesterday that... Um, the people of um, the Brexiteers should be respecting uh, Northern Ireland's 56% vote for Remain. And uh, I did tweet back, well, it seems that certain majorities seem to matter more to Anna Shubri <laughs> than <laughs> other majorities. <laughs> but you um, you keep an eye on me, Aisha, on I Twitter, do, don't I you? Do, I I'm do. trying to be a reformed character and be less and toxic in some of my uh, tweets. Am I getting better? I think you are getting better. I think, um, obviously... Twitter is so divisive and Brexit is so divisive. So when you put the two together, you get, you know, ordinarily very mild-mannered people like yourself just suddenly completely sort of losing it and sort of turning into to Rambo on, on, on Twitter in a way, which is... Yeah, so can I, I say mean, Rambo's a bit sort of 1980s, 1990s? Well, you are a bit 19 years old. <laughs> <laughs> just being honest, Tim, just being honest, just being honest. We're going to fall out. Yeah. I know, but I'll be tweeting about you, not Anna Soupy. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but I have to say, I do agree with you. I think the most interesting thing about the, it's not so much the details of the the customs union and, and, and who knows, you know, the EU may not even accept it, but it's the politics of what Jeremy Corbyn has done and it's the body language which sends out a signal which is, you know, I'm not messing around anymore. For all you people who thought that I was completely sort of useless and unpolitical, actually, I'm proving to be, you know, even more ruthless than I think any new Labour spin operation would have ever sort of hoped to be. And I think the politics of this are pretty devastating. You know, he, we've got big local elections coming up, particularly in metropolitan areas. He needs a good showing at those elections mm. to, to carry on with his narrative that, you know, he's on the road um, to Downing Street, particularly a big win in London, which I know is not like necessarily the general elections sewn up because you won London, but it will be a big 
symbol. For him, it will be a big kind of win. It's good for the Labour Party. The Labour Party's got a lot of internal division, particularly this week. Our, our last general secretary was sort of removed um, uh, in quite a shock move last Friday. So this kind of brings the party together. The party is more keen to have a softer Brexit. And it makes trouble for Theresa May. And the one thing that he's proved to not be squeamish about is causing trouble in Parliament. Now, the question is, how many of the MPs on your side, the Conservatives, would actually put their money where their mouth is and actually walk through the lobbies mm. with the Labour Party? I know Anna Subri would, I think um, Dominic Grieve would, I think Ken Clark would. How many more, though, would you, would you actually and, uh, get? And would they, if Theresa May chooses to make it an issue of confidence? You know, because this is absolutely a central project of the Conservative government and it was a pretty clear manifesto commitment and would Anna Subri, Dominic Grieve, Ken Clark essentially choose to vote down a Tory government on this issue with the possibility that that would lead to Jeremy Corbyn uh, a general election which Jeremy Corbyn would win. So I think the answer to that is yes because I, mean, I think Dominic Grieve has already indicated publicly on the record and I think they would sort of say that this issue is bigger than party politics for them. It's a matter of conscience, um, you know, which is sort of what the John Major intervention was. You know, actually, it's it's sort of down to every single individual MP because this is the biggest decision that this country's that, taken that, since that, the that's, second. That's John Major, who always used to complain about Margaret Thatcher being a backseat driver, undermining <laughs> him, now undermining another Tory <laughs> Prime Minister. Is, is, that, is, is that the one? That is the one. To? But look, <laughs> we're living in a post-protocol sort of world. I mean, obviously, people feel so strongly about it. But I mean, I think people were quite taken aback by his um, suggestion. Obviously, I presume you're against that as an idea, giving MPs a free vote. Yes, because um, the manifesto commitments were pretty clear. And I think there's a huge danger. The, 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 those that are trying to unpick uh, Brexit are, you know, are potentially uh, causing a huge political problem when David Cameron was absolutely clear before the EU referendum, what you vote for, we will implement. And um, if that isn't implemented, um, then, then I, I worry a great deal. If it's only the customs union, which is the compromise, that's probably doable. So you could live with, you could live with Corbyn's customs union well, proposal. Well, the, there's another topic that we've been in, you know, uh, uh, texting about, and um, uh, and it's probably not for this podcast. But you know, I worry a great deal at the moment about the entrenchment of people in politics on all sides. You know, the, the, the not just it's not just enough to win an argument or win a majority or win a referendum. There seems to be a determination sometimes to to give no quarter to the other side, to just completely humiliate them. And it was a 52-48 decision. It wasn't a 66-34 decision. There was a closeness to this. And the Theresa May government has not been able to take the country and the Remainers with it since the referendum result, either by its proposition on Brexit or by advancing a one-nation socially just agenda that relaxes people about what Britain is becoming. Uh, uh, and if you, if you haven't done that, I think you cannot therefore necessarily... I completely oppose a customs union arrangement, but at some point you have to acknowledge that there is another side of people uh, in this debate who feel very strongly, who are unreconciled, and you have to hand... You have to 
offer them some sort of concession. Absolutely. And that's a true generally, I think, in politics. Well, Tim, that's a, that is a very... Maybe you and I should be. We should be negotiating uh, Brexit. I think we might do a, a, a better job. And I think you're right. And I think one of the one of the tragedies about where Theresa May has ended up is, and look, let's see. She's just made this um, big speech where I think she's again she's curving back towards um, more concessions. I think to the Remainers by saying, look, there you seems know, to be different opinions on that, but yes, that probably is the majority view, yeah. That is the majority view. I think she's still held firm on the customs union, but she is sort of, you know, leaning into saying, look, let's keep as close as we can on our standards. That will kind of calm a lot of people down. But I do think there is a big majority of people actually in the middle of that 48-52 divide who just want something kind of want to respect the mandate of what happened but they do want something quite sort of pragmatic yeah. rather than something which is very hard and ideological well, I think a lot of them want us to stop talking about it they probably, <laughs> well, probably they glad that snow is leading the news bulletins rather they, than they probably do they probably do and maybe on that note we can segue <laughs> um, into um, Henry we I mean look there's there are huge parallels with all of this and obviously what your um, home country is experienced, this sort of perceived division between yep. the elites and the, 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 the Rust Belt communities, the flyover communities, mm-hmm. our deindustrialized communities here. And again this week, Trump has made another quite you know stunning policy intervention, which is he appears to want to go and have a tariff war on, on steel again throwing some red meat to his rust belt saying you know i'm standing up for you you're not just consumers you're producers of steel as well and everyone else is going absolutely bonkers about it what's what's your take on it well it's the division between uh, it's a it's a touchstone and a symbol of the global division between what i call the ins and the outs is that people who are benefiting from the global economy and the global uh breakdown of national identity are, whether they are formally on the left or the right, are uniformly opposed to what Trump is doing. But what they did was they effectively ran America for 20 years, just as the Blair Cameron duopoly ran Britain for 20 years, and they created this society without thinking what was going to happen to the people who weren't as well equipped as they were to compete. And so that's why you have Brexit, that's why we have Donald Trump, and I think Donald Trump is rewarding his voters, and I think Donald Trump is willing to uh, make the sacrifice in overall uh, consumer benefit for the, the for the winners in order to give more people who have been losers uh, an opportunity to get back on the rungs of American life. But is you know is this an like do people really care about steel tariffs? Do his people think this is actually the most important thing he could do for them? terms of policy I stuff. would suspect that if you went and there's a tone of incredulity in your voice uh, and I think if you were to go into these areas you would find them cheering the television set that finally somebody understood what was going on and, th- and this is because you have an American president standing up to the Chinese standing up to the people who've competed them out of jobs? Yes, that's exactly right. It's, is that it's a patriotism rather than anything else. Well, it's self-interest and patriotism combined. Is that the thing, the, for me, the thing to grasp about what people are broadly calling populism, or at least this aspect of populism, is that it's based on a notion of citizenship. 
that people feel that the people that uh, they are members of a nation that the nation has an informal obligation to provide for the their opportunity to participate to the best of their capacity in the national life and that a global society that has no limits on trade no limits on migration is one that means that they can't win and they feel ignored they feel belittled and they feel denigrated and uh, when somebody stands up and like Donald Trump and says you're part of this country too we're going to make America great again they hear we're going to make Americans great again and that that matters to them so I actually think that Donald Trump um, the specific of the steel tariff is not as important as the stand that America's public policy is going to stand to directly benefit the native-born American who otherwise is placed at a disadvantage with people in global competition. So, just on that, I suppose native-born American, look, you can take that back to, you know, the whole we're all immigrants in a way, and a lot of this does come down to a race element that Trump has chosen to, to kind of highlight to cause a lot of division, and he knows that sort of plays very, very well for him. But just on the, you know, as you said... Yeah, I would actually disagree with that, but we can continue. Yeah, well, we probably would always disagree with that. We're from kind of completely different backgrounds. I mean, I get, I had a, I get quite sick of people telling me, well, you're not properly British because clearly you're not because of the colour of my skin. And it's like, well, I do feel I'm actually yeah. properly British. I'm actually not. I'm from Glasgow, let's be actually honest about that. I'm Scottish. Well, you moan so much about the weather anyway. So I know. You must well, be this British. is my perfect weather, actually. <laughs> this is like this is like a kind of home away from home. But just on the kind of stance versus the what he can deliver on, I completely agree with you. The whole thing about why he has been so successful, and actually, I think one of the reasons the Brexit campaign was was the, the Leave campaign was was such a good campaign was that they had amazing slogans that cut through to people. They were emotionally intelligent slogans, making America great again. That's a huge feel-good thing about yourself. Taps into all those stuff that you would, you know, I, the native white American, someone standing up for me, take back control was the, the, the phrase. These are all kind of great slogans. They're amazing slogans. They're tested and they work really, really well. But the problem is, are they actually going to deliver for those people. I mean, we've just had a conversation about Brexit. One of the great worries is a lot of people who voted for Brexit may actually not see benefits in Brexit. And there's an argument that the economy tanks, they will be the people that are worse off. Similarly, in America, what evidence is there that Trump can actually deliver anything beyond a good jingoistic kind of patriotic feel-good slogan? I think when you're in the bottom of a well, you will seize any bucket that comes down. And I think what the experience for many of these people has been, has been uh, the current system isn't working. And if we were to look back 85 years ago in the midst of the Great Depression, well, what promise do you have that Franklin Roosevelt can, through his New Deal, lift your life? I mean, nobody's ever tried the sort of tax and spend and redistribution policies that he was proposing. but. What choice did they have? The current system had clearly failed them. And I think the thing that people who are educated and live in places where I live need to recognize is that the system has failed them. They're not wrong about that. Yep. And I think everybody would agree with that. Well, actually, I don't think everybody would agree with that. I think that. everyone around this table would agree with that. Well, I think that's why we're here and unheard. <laughs> and yeah. I think that that actually is a unifying factor regardless of our 
formal other political differences. But I don't think if I were to go in the city uh, or if I were to go on Wall Street that people would agree with that. I think they would immediately say, actually, these people are fine, but uh, or these people could be better, but they're ch they're laggards, they're lazy, they're losers, they're not moving, they're not they are not taking responsibility to become more like us. Yeah, and that's actually a way of ignoring the issue. It's it's. Um, saying that they're either no losers or the losers that are there are there of their own fault uh, without any obligation of us to take care of or deal with that question. And that is a politically toxic stance to take. Absolutely. That is the, that, that is the stance of an unreformed Bourbon monarchy. I mean, and I think we, we absolutely have had many of the same conversations following the decision to leave the, the EU. And actually, I mean, I'm a firm believer that that decision was a shot in the arm for Trump's campaign as well, because I think there there are absolute similarities. I guess the question now is, though, you know, everyone I think is alive, to, well, I think not everybody, as you were saying, but I think quite a lot of people, certainly when we have these discussions. But what is it that we think, do you, do you think that Trump can change the lives of these people? Do you think he can make things actually better? I mean, his tax cuts, which are hugely popular, are not actually going to benefit his core Rust Belt supporters that much. Well, that depends on what you think is going to happen with corporate investment. But the direct benefits, the short-term benefits, flow much more to people in higher incomes. That's yeah. certainly correct. You know, Trump's argument is that, if you take the argument seriously, is that if you make it easier for people to make money in America, and then you throw up barriers to foreigners to compete with Americans, then the market of America is large enough that we will attract people to produce for American consumption in America rather than produce outside of America, and that that will be a win-win for American consumers and American producers. Can he achieve it? I don't know if he can achieve it, but what I'll tell you is that uh, there is no political majority in the United States without addressing this because of the way we elect our presidents and the way we elect our United States Senate. And if you cannot accommodate these people's opinions in a meaningful way that they find persuasive, then you cannot be elected in the United States. And do you think his protectionism is a good idea? Do you think, think building this walled garden and sort of What I would America? prefer is, uh, what I would, uh, one, I think to the extent that foreign countries are engaging in um, behind the door uh, subsidization, into intellectual property theft uh, or um, currency manipulation, that absolutely we need to uh, deal with that in a fair way. It's basically if you're, not, if you're not either living up to the letter or the spirit of the deal, we have to enforce the deal to the degree that we can in order to get you to behave properly so that the competition is fair. Uh, I would much prefer people who support the global trading system, as I do, to have some meaningful government response to the people who have been losers, which is to say, I think we should think about wage subsidies. If the only jobs we're willing to pay through the private sector pay people a, a, a substandard wage, I think we should put it on the public purse in order to top it up. Well, that's, a, that's, what, that's a great policy. That's what we actually did under a Labour government, tax credits to top up low-paid people, because we wanted to push the argument that it was better to work and it was mm -hmm. really important to get off welfare and to get to work 
but we topped up the the wages. I mean, that's a great state intervention. Right, which would be highly controversial in the United States, but it's something that I would strongly support. I think one thing that uh, in the it would be easier in the U.S. I think, but uh, I think we need to uh, subsidize moving. That the thing that strikes me whenever I come to London is nobody that I meet in the service industry is British. They're all Eastern European or other European immigrants, and there are plenty of people 200 miles to the north of here who probably, with a little bit of training and polishing, could do 60% of those jobs. But yet, they're in Sunderland, they're in Stoke, they're in Wigan, and they're not here. Why? Well, it's because of things that keep people in place, government incentives that create a sense of being in place, and um, an unwillingness to say that our citizens come first. And I think that's why migration is such a hot topic, is oh, that... Uh, sorry, I just suppose I push back on that sure. a bit, which is... I'm just sat back enjoying <laughs> you too. <laughs> just. Well, I just think <laughs> on that, you know, I... So a lot of people do want to come to London because... And the southeast because there's a lot of boom going on. But remember, there are other things that keep people where they are, like their family... And, you know, there's, you can't put sort of a cost on that. So instead of saying, let's sort of pay people to come to London, we actually need an industrial strategy in this country, which kind of shares some of the wealth and opportunity in other parts well, of that, the Well, that's the great debate, is it? So if we accept, as you and I accept, but in my country there are many people who don't accept, and I think if we were to cross the river into the city, you would find there are people who don't accept. If you and I agree that we, as a government, uh, people acting through government, have an obligation to try and share the opportunity, the question to me is, is it fairer to the people who are not going to directly benefit, the taxpayers who we are going to burden with taxes, uh, to try and subsidize industry to go somewhere where they don't want to go, or to subsidize people to where industry does want to go. I think that, yes, people want to stay near their families, but if the question is in, uh, that we, they are going to be asking the other people in the country to help them get back into their national life, is it fair for them to say, actually, I'd like you to pay more for your goods, I'd like you to pay higher taxes to bring industry to me rather than from bring me to the industry I that's already being attracted? I think it's distribution of what already is there, and I think actually it's a bit of both, but I think a good government and a government with a vision will do a bit of leading. So, for example, a lot of money went into country, you know, cities like Manchester, um, and Birmingham outside London which has really kind of stimulated business business there and they are hubs you know in their own right there and it's not that they're um, you know sort of second to London they see themselves as you know important sort of commercial centres as well so I don't think anybody would feel that in fact one of the big debates in this country right now is about the northern powerhouse right. and there is a very and it's a kind of an agreed thing but from left to right of politics that we should be investing more outside it's actually not it's not good from a planning point of view to have one part of the country overheating in terms of housing in terms of infrastructure as well it does actually make more uh, and sense there's, it's controversial to the extent to which it exists but i think you'd have to concede that London does get more than its fair share of investment in infrastructure at the moment relative to the north. So, um, and to rural areas, which are often forgotten. Rural poverty is a very real and different phenomenon and um, it probably doesn't have the people and politicians speaking up for it in the way that perhaps some of the northern 
cities do as uh, places in uh, suffering from disadvantage. We have a much more decentralized system in America so that we have many governors uh, in our states who have been using public funds to attract businesses to come to underserved areas. Mm -hmm. So there is some of that going on. Uh, we also have much more decentralized infrastructure planning. I mean, from an American perspective, the question is, should the United States federal government be giving national tax subsidies to corporations in order to go to places that they would not otherwise want to go? Should you, as a federal and, government... But Trump has been doing that, hasn't he? No, he has not. But he, didn't he do it with the um, Indiana... That was before he, he did it through persuasion, and that was before he became president. And in fact, you, and this is where you can see how the in-media, they've been going back to that plant and gleefully saying over the last year, he said he got the jobs, but they're closing down the lines anyway. See, it doesn't work. See, you shouldn't be doing mm -hmm. it. See, we don't really care. And I added the last part, but mm -hmm. they've... They've been going back to try and attack that very policy. And that's been true across the left and the right. Um, and from an American standpoint, it's just different. But the question is, if you've got somebody who wants to come to the very burgeoning, booming parts in the Southwest, um, and that's where it makes business sense for them to settle, do you think that America should say, we'll pay you a billion dollars in tax uh, write-offs each year if you go to rural Michigan? Uh, because that's what we're talking about in an American standpoint. And I would much rather say, hey, you're coming here, rather than use this as a way to encourage people to come across the border at their own physical risk and work without legal documentation in the United States to provide the labor for that plan. Why don't we have a system that says, if you're out of work in West Virginia, we'll pay you and top up the wages because actually no one's ever going to want to come back to where you are. But here's this great place. Before the social safety net, people moved all the time in response to economic hardship. When you had no choice, you left your place of birth behind. It's hard, but I would much rather use the social safety net to cushion and get people back on the ladder uh, than to continually uh, subsidize development of places that don't make economic sense, especially since we know that that then will lead to crony capitalism, that once that becomes the national standpoint, any place, any firm that wants to go anywhere will say, well, you just gave my competitor a billion dollars to go to Michigan. How about writing off my taxes to go to North Carolina? And then it becomes this huge insider crony game that can only both bankrupt the Treasury and end up defeating the, or potentially defeating the very purpose of the intervention to begin with, whereas popular migration doesn't create that internal big money, big lobbying effort that often manipulates American government. Sure. I mean, it's a really, it's a very interesting idea. I suppose the the issue is once, you know, once people have some family roots, it's quite difficult to, to move just to say, look, here is, you know, here's another sort of job over here. And also in terms of migration, it's always quite difficult as well, um, and I know this from my own parents' experience. You know, when you when you move to an area which isn't hugely um, populated with with different type of people, it can be very kind of difficult as well. There is the sort of human cost as well mm -hmm. um, of that type of migration. I mean, the interesting thing about particularly London and um, you know the, the the situation you describe in America. I mean, one of the reasons London is such a booming city is because it is run on immigration and it's run on absolute hard work and the aspiration of people that come here, come here often when they're young, don't have much money, they want to work, hustle really, really hard to do well. That's why we're a city that does well. 
And interestingly, I spent quite a lot of time in what we would call some of our flyover communities, those communities that voted leave, but are from a sort of a Labour um, background, because I was interested to see why people voted um, in those areas. And one of the things that was really, really interesting, actually, was quite a lot of men who ran their own businesses said, I voted to leave because of the reasons you said, frustration, the system is broken, I hate all of you guys, you're all elites, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we've got to do more to put our own citizens first and, and they have to be employed. Yet their biggest moan was, I can't get the young men in my areas to come and do these jobs. They won't come and work in my road haulage company, they won't clean the windows. Um, so I need my men to come from Eastern Europe. Please don't stop these guys. I mean, I do want to cut down immigration, but don't stop my men coming to do these jobs. So the, I think the migration thing is, I mean, look, it's one of the key things that, you know, Trump is talking about. It's a big part of our Brexit narrative. And I think there are there are no um, kind of easy sort of solutions on it. But let me ask you, so you're from Glasgow. Yeah, originally, and you, yeah. And you live in London. I was born in California. I've moved all across the United States, and now I'm working in a London company. Tim grew up outside of London, and now he's living in London. Mm, although you sort of spend your, split your time. Well, I was a sort of forces child, a forces brat, I think is the expression, so I never really did have roots. Yeah. That's supposed to elicit some sympathetic noises from both of you. I'm just getting my I believe we have <laughs> the government <laughs> program. Tiny violin <laughs> here. My, my point is, is that we all have university degrees, and we moved. Despite family elsewhere, we're in a new place to take advantage of opportunities. People from deprived places mm. in Europe move hundreds of miles, and in some cases come here and go back on weekends, uh, I've been told. They certainly remit huge amounts of money. And to remit huge amounts of money. Um, so they've moved. Why is it different for somebody in Stoke or in Middlesbrough? They should be able to move. Everyone, anyone. But my question is, why is it the incentive? Why are we choosing to and they are not? Partly because I think the cost of living in London, accommodation is huge. And you look at some of what immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe are willing to tolerate in terms of the mm -hmm. accommodation that they will live in London. Quite understandably, British people have a different kind of expectation. That's right. Um, and so actually, you know, the, the dysfunctionality, particularly of the property market in the southeast of England, makes a lot of what you're saying very difficult for anyone to actually um, achieve. Right. And immigrants will, um, rightly or wrongly, perhaps we're taking advantage of, uh, uh, of their willingness to tolerate conditions we generally wouldn't, but they are willing to work in a stay in bunk bed accommodation and such like, if that means that's the job that they get in a Costa Coffee or a, you know, one of the other places that serve so many of us. Right. I, I, I'm not saying there is an easy answer, but what I'm saying is, is getting back to what sparked all of this. If people who want to protect the current system do not in some way have a workable alternative that legitimately responds to the, to the, to the sense, sensibilities of people in flyover country, you know, of the Stokes, of the, you know, of the Reddings, of the, of the Slews, Slough. 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 Yeah. Um, and You'll so be saying Leicester Square next, <laughs> won't you, Henry? Leicester. I know that. <laughs> They beat us two years ago, <laughs> no, and I we will never forgive. I, but, um, I think so, you're right, Henry. I mean, I, do, I think so. Unless we do that, that uh, yes. But then the question is, what do we do about yeah. it? Because if we don't get in front, we're going to go into an election in Italy on Sunday. 
where populist parties combined, if you believe the polls, will get a minimum of 42% of the vote. I think they're going to get close to 50. Um, 20 years of slow growth, 20 years of center-right and center-left that have done little to nothing, even in the face of popular uh, statements, and they've had enough. And so if we want to protect and not have a reaction that creates a wall barrier, a, a Italy first that separates themselves in some way from the rest of the continent, if we actually want to preserve liberal global political economy, we must make accommodations to bring them into it. And to say, well, they don't want to do the jobs, they don't want to do this. If we talked about other people in that way, you'd be laughed out of the audience. No, I, I mean, I, don't, I think we, I completely agree with your analysis on that. Where I think probably disagree with you is what is the prescription. If the prescri so if you, if you sp spoke to, to a lot of people like that, it'll be like, close the borders. Now that is not, that's not a practical, that's not a practical solution for this country, particularly other countries. You, you can't close the borders in, in Europe. And also you can't sort of stop the world and get off what you can do is try and address a lot of the kind of underlying causes. Actually, when you talk, and I have spent, I mean, I grew up in, you know, a very deindustrialized part on the outside of Glasgow, former mining community, super high unemployment, every kind of industrial related disease you could imagine. So people who grew up in very, very poverty sort of stricken area, very frustrated about things as well. And um, quite anti-immigrant as well. So when my family first came, they're very, very hostile. But actually, when you get under the skin of what, what a lot of the grievances are about, it goes back to the stuff that you were talking about earlier. Very, very low wages, very, very insecure work now, very difficult work, actually. Um, lack of investment in public services, not feeling like their kids get a fair crack of the whip, mm -hmm. their perceptions. So I think the way to sort of kind of solve all of this in the long term is is absolutely engaging with people but not kind of drawing the sort of barriers down as well mm. um and i think but i think you and i have sort of disagreed but i think our, i think we agree on a point of principle which is mm -hmm. i think a lot of people do the system is broken in many ways and a lot of people do feel like their voices have been unheard in britain in america right across western europe right now those unheard voices, which is why we're discussing them on Unheard. Um, thank you so much, uh, Henry, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Tim. Um, we've got lots of interesting content on on all of these things, and we've got lots of uh, your unheard voice, you, your kind of unsung heroes, your unheard heroes is a very interesting um, little uh, sequence as well. So do go to the website unheard.com and uh, join us again next week. <laughs>